Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love and your grace that is shown to us in your Son, Jesus, that through him we've been reconciled to you. We confess this morning that we have sinned against you in thought, in word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. And for your sake and for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, may you forgive us all of our offenses and grant that we might serve you in the newness of life for your glory. Amen. So this morning we are confronted by what I believe to be one of the greatest texts in the New Testament. It's a text that does not prescribe any type of action, but it's a text that rather states what is. It's a text that invites us into deep relationship and faith with our Savior. It invites us into knowing the glory of our Savior, and it causes us to move and to be stirred with the greatness and wonder of who he is. And it's in this place of great awe and wonder that we are moved to pause and to marvel at Jesus Christ, the Savior of the entire cosmos. To say that he is the Savior of the entire world is insufficient, but he is the Savior of the entire universe. He holds all things together. And so it's here in this place of awe and wonder that we find ourselves ruined. We find ourselves ruined because we have considered the heights of God and his glory something to be grasped, something to be contended with. And in many ways, we have believed the great lie and the temptation that was given to us in the garden in Adam and Eve, that if we took the fruit, we too could be like God. And so in our sin, we strive every day to reach the highest human possible achievement in an effort to prove our worthiness of being our own God. And in doing so, we choose to ignore the cries of our human capacities. We see humans as resources. We have human resource departments. We see them as things to be managed and used up and neglected. And in doing so, in many ways, we've created a new gospel. We've created a new dream. Some might call it an American dream. And this dream we think is a new dream. We think it's a new idea that if we were to give everything that we have, that eventually someday we could become like God. But do not be deceived at this dream, at this American dream, or the idea that this dream is new in any way, for it's rather a really old dream. It's a dream that comes from the hearts of our ancestors of long ago, from the city of Babylon, the city of Babel. And it's here in the city of Babel, the city of Babylon, that we see what the dream for what it really is. The dream says that if we set our minds to it, we can reach heaven, and we can fulfill our destiny of becoming like God. 
And it's in this place that there will be no need for God because we ourselves will become God ourselves. And so if we are God, we have no need for him. And in many ways, this temptation of Babel is the very same temptation that torments today both us individually and as a society. Personally, we wrestle with this temptation to be relevant. We want to be entertaining. We want to appear knowledgeable. We want people to like us. We want people to see us as useful, as productive, as knowledgeable, as worthy of having value. And so instead of gathering together as a church where we would ask the question, how is your soul doing this morning? We gather together instead and say, did you see the game last night? And maybe, maybe the idea of talking about sports is, is a little nonsensical, and so maybe you reach for the more sensible thing that is the news, and you start saying, hey, have you seen the latest news? Because that's more sensible, that's more refined. But no matter how you dice it, whether it's sports or whether it's news, it's all entertainment nonetheless, and it's all quickly passing away. But yet it doesn't prevent us from building large archives to hold this rather meaningless information. I mean, anyone that watches the Super Bowl knows how many meaningless records they hold for the Super Bowl. It's like someone sneezes, and they're like, first time someone sneezed in the Super Bowl. (laughs) Like, they have that saved somewhere. And it's all rather meaningless information that's passing away. I mean, what is the hope of storing all this information? That one day society, far from now, will look back and marvel at our achievements? That they will praise our creativity and ingenuity? What I'm afraid is that they will look back instead and see with amazement our obsession with empty words and vain pursuits. That they will look back at the archive and just think, what were these people doing? What were these people chasing? And I believe that this overflow of entertainment has caused us in many ways, subconsciously, to dilute the grandeur and perfection and the holiness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so that we gather here week to week and we're left unmoved. We're left unchanged because we don't necessarily take the time to stop and to gaze on the holiness and the glory and the beauty of the begotten Son that is Jesus Christ. I mean, in many ways, we've been quick to make Jesus our friend or our buddy. And we've seen Jesus' primary job in our lives is to be the one who's able to make our lives more comfortable. And when trials and pain or disappointment or frustration arise, we are quick to question his faithfulness to us or whether or not he's present in our lives. And we find ourselves asking this question, is God punishing me right now? I mean, this existential crisis can be very, very real. This past Monday, to my own embarrassment, I burnt out the engine in our car. I was driving, it overheated, I pulled over, and it was done. It turned itself off. And honestly, even though it was kind of no fault of my own, I sat there kind of sick. And I'm not going to lie, this question ran through my mind. Is God punishing me for this? Did I do something that caused you know, my engine to overheat and, and to blow up? I mean, it, it's a difficult question to not ask this. To not ask this question if God is punishing us or teaching us a lesson as if Jesus were some type of cosmological schoolmaster willing to deliver us a grade on how we respond. Justin's response, C. You can improve. 
You know, I think that's what we think about who our God is. But when in reality, our God is nothing like that. And he is far from that question of, is God punishing me? The reality is, is that things break. Things wear out. People make mistakes. And as humans, we are incredibly, incredibly limited. So instead, what Jesus is really trying to get at is for us to put our plans and our possessions aside and that we might come to know that we are his possession and that for his sake, we are able to live out the good works and the good plans that he has prepared for us in advance. And so he wants us to put aside our plans and our possessions so that we might take the rightful place of being his possession and walking out his plans. But in order to do this, we must pause. We must hit the pause button on our lives and on our busy schedules, and we must step aside. And we must face this fact that we as humans have limits and that these limits are, in fact, a blessing from God. Now, you know this feeling, this feeling that you have at the end of the day of the long list of things that you have left unfinished, that list that you might see as a curse is actually a blessing from God because that list that is unfinished at the end of the day testifies to you that you are not God and that you are never going to be God, that you are never going to get done all that you would have the desire to get done. And it reminds us that in every way that we attempt to be God, we are going to fail ultimately at our goal of personal deification. But yet our temptation to become like God runs so deep within us that in moments that we begin to feel the limitations of our body or of our mind, where we feel the pressures of this world closing in. I mean, have you ever been there where you're like, man, it feels like all sides are closing in. And our own pride, instead of falling to our knees and crying for help or picking up the phone and calling for help and asking for help, what do we do? We press forward, believing in the dream that one day we will be like God. And that one day, we will not have to serve any other master. And so in many ways, we're like the people of Colossae. The people of Colossae were good with Jesus. They liked Jesus. They liked having him around. But at the same time, they liked a Jesus and. A Jesus and, can I be my own God? Can I still do the things that I want to do and get the perks of Jesus? Instead of living a life that is for Jesus, period. I mean, I think when we're honest, you and I, we like the idea of Jesus being our helper as long as it goes towards building our own Tower of Babel. As long as Jesus can pitch in, we like Jesus. We like the idea of a Jesus that we can negotiate with and manipulate. We like the idea of making promises with a Jesus that says, hey, Jesus, if you provide X, and this X is this thing that I really, really need for my tower, guess what I'll do? I'll throw your name on the tower. Big gold letters. My tower in your name, if you would just provide for my needs. And we say these things, dead serious, to our Lord. We make these prayers, blinded by our own pride, that we don't realize how offensive it is to ask the creator of the universe for help in us trying to achieve and build our own glory, our own building, our own structure, in which we plan to have a status that is going to be greater or equal to his. 
But this is the great Greek influence in Colossae, and it's the great Greek influence of our own lives and of our own society that we have a place among the gods and that we should pursue that place. But eventually, eventually our world becomes undone. Eventually, no matter what tower or structure we're building, it ultimately collapses. We either get tired and break or we die. And in any case, in any case, our tower comes crashing down and our dream remains unrealized. And it is this case of death that I find most, most ironic because it's the ultimate human limit, right? We're all going to die. And it, it is also the ultimate failure of a God. For a God to die means that that person's not God, that that person is failed. That is unless you're able to overcome death then I would say that person would be the God of gods. And of that class of God, I only know but one, and that is Jesus Christ. The God who took on flesh, the one who became the image of the invisible God to come and make himself explicitly known among us, calling us to let go of our dreams, to recognize our limits, and to find ourselves in need of him, a savior for this world, you see, there's a man named Peter, and Peter was a fisherman. And Peter strove all night with his crew and failed to catch one fish. Worked all night, couldn't catch a fish. Yet, by the words of Jesus, by whom all things were created on both heaven and earth, Peter puts out his nets one last time. And at his amazement, he receives a catch so large that his nets begin to burst. Now, in this story of Peter, Peter is left with his limits completely exposed. He's a fisherman who couldn't catch a fish. And then when he does make a catch, his nets are so inadequate that they burst and he is unable to receive it. And so it's here where Peter sees his limitation in deep contrast to Jesus' holiness that Peter runs to Christ and falls on his knees and he says, depart from me for I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord. Peter understood who Jesus is, and he is struck with awe. And this awe that I'm talking about, it's not this wonder and awe kind of that we look at a sunset, but rather it's an awe that acknowledges the holy presence of our God. It's an awe that kind of brings about this holy dread. It's the same awe that the prophet Isaiah experienced when he encounters the presence of God, and he says to him, depart from me. He says, woe to me, I am ruined, and I am a man of unclean lips. And so I asked this morning, when was the last time we approached Jesus with such reverence? When was the last time we approached him with such awe and wonder and humility, woefully acknowledging our pitiful state before him, that we are nothing before a perfect and holy God? I mean, when we do this, when we realize our nothingness, before our God, it is here where we can be most blessed. It's here when we realize that we have nothing to offer, that we are in the greatest position to receive, to receive his grace, to receive his love, to receive his mercy, to receive his joy. Because there's only one, there's only one in all of creation that is both visible and invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that is able to open the scroll in heaven 
in the last day. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. And so it's here in the throne room of Christ where our efforts to become great and rule and establish our own thrones and our own dominions, whether it be our homes, whether it be in our workplace, whether it be in the greater establishment of governments or programs made in our own image, these things are left completely exposed and they are seen as foolishness next to the mighty and glory and power of Jesus. I mean, they search all of heaven and earth. And there's no one worthy to open the scroll. No one that was able to attain that level of achievement or holiness or greatness. But the lamb that was slain. But oftentimes we forsake the greatness of our Christ. We forsake the greatness of our Lord. And we quickly take to a kind of foolish and child games of play. And it often looks kind of like this king of the hill. Anyone play king of the hill? as a child. I mean, the goal is to climb up the steep dirt embankment and claim yourself king over all of it, while at the same time throwing everyone else that challenges you to the ground. And what's most ironic about the game of King of the Hill is that you work and you scratch and you crawl and you climb to get to the top to only find that at the top, it's really kind of the worst place to be. (laughs) Because everyone is coming for you and everyone is coming to throw you down the hill. Eventually, king of the hill ends with no one really being king, and everyone else is just kind of exhausted. Everyone's tired, they're scratched, they're bruised, and almost everyone has been thrown down the hill at least once. Now, what often goes unnoticed in this king of the hill is not necessarily the scratches and the bruises that we inflict on one another, but it's the condition of the pile afterwards. What used to be this glorious hill of dirt that you were claiming to be king over, it's left to nothing but kind of shambles and piles. It's a little mound now. And so in our pursuits to become glorious and to become great and trampling over one another, we also trample over the thing that we're trying to rule. And so when we look around at our world and we wonder why our lives are broken or why our governments and our systems are broken and disappointing, it's because we've believed the lie that we are capable of becoming like God and that we have no need for him. And so very much we are like the king of the hill, seeking all to be king, destroying one another in the process and also destroying the things that we are trying to be king over. Yet as perceived kings and rulers on a quest to become like God, we often put too much of our faith into something that was never designed to save us. Our families won't save us, our jobs won't save us, and certainly our governments will not save us. Jesus actually warns us against these things. And so I don't care how much our government returns back to Christ, it will never have the power to save because our government will never be Christ himself. And so in our attempts to live up to lift up our towers of Babel, what ends up happening is we end up crushing one another and everyone else around us in the process. And so let's turn our eyes not to our governments, not to our programs, not to our luxuries, not to our relationships, or whatever it is that you try and find hope and peace and rest in that's not Jesus. And instead, let us turn our eyes to him, to his glory and to his might, 
that we might start living for Jesus, period, instead of Jesus and all of these other things. For he is the one whom all things are created through and for. All things created through and for Christ. Everything is intended for and will be subject to his glory, both in his judgment and in his salvation. And this includes you and me. Because we were created through Christ and we were created for Christ and for his joy and for his pleasure and for the plans that he has prepared for us in advance. I mean, have we ever stopped and marveled at the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139 as we are created for Christ? Psalm 139 verse 13 says this. It says, for you, were for, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. I mean, with what glory and with what intentional precision were you created through Christ our Lord? You are not an accident. You were planned and you were created by the hand of God. Even though he knew full well that we would leave him, that we would betray him, that we would become his enemies, he counted it worth it, worth it to make us and worth it to die for us so that we might know his deep love for us. Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, kind of our state, and it's the state that Peter kind of taps into when he encounters the incredible greatness of Christ when he says, depart from me because I am a sinful man. But yet Peter is reminded of his love. So Paul taps into this idea of our identity and as our position in Christ. And it says that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that's now in work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived for the passions of our flesh, carrying the desires of our body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. I mean, this is all of that Babel building that I'm talking about. This is all of us neglecting our limits. This is all of us trying to become our own God. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with us, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And he has raised us up with him, and he seats us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So it's by Christ we will be able to sit in that throne room and observe him open those seals so that in the coming ages he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And it's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work so that anyone may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared and advance so that we might walk in them. So it is through Christ, and it is for Christ, in which we live. So I ask, how often do you allow yourself to be taken by 
the life and the love of Christ. How often do you marvel at the man that he was, at the Savior that he was, that this king of the cosmos would take off his royal robe and put on flesh and blood, that the creator of the world would make himself subject to the creation, even death, in order that his creation might know his deep love and his true relationship that he wants for them. I mean, how can we not stand amazed when we read Jesus encountering the paralytic and he tells the paralytic, take up your mat and walk, and he does. I mean, I think sometimes we read these stories and we're like, yeah, of course he does, because he met Jesus. Next page. You know, we are not amazed anymore. It's become too familiar. We don't stop and pause and allow the greatness of who Jesus is to hit us in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls. And even more so, how should we also be amazed not when he says, get up and walk, but when he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The holy God and the creator of all things, whom we have grossly offended with our lives, comes into this world not with punishment and wrath, but with good news. Good news that says, I forgive you. I've forgiven you. Even though you have sinned against me, even though you have plotted evil against me, even though you don't understand who I am, your sins are forgiven. I think sometimes we have a hard time walking in this forgiveness and in this idea that our God is good and that our God is loving because we have this idea that our God is out to punish us, like we talked about earlier. But I also think we have this really poor theological idea that says Jesus cannot be present to sin. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had where they're like, yeah, Jesus just can't be present to sin, can't be present to sin. I was like, if that was true, Mary would have blown up. Like, at conception, she would have exploded. So we have this idea that Mary, that not Mary, that Jesus cannot be present to sin. And we think that while we're off sinning, that Jesus is going to turn his head, that he's going to abandon us, that he's going to leave us. Well, my question is, is this what Scripture says? Is this what Scripture teaches? Because there's this woman in John that's caught in the very act of adultery, and she's drug out in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he go running? Does he say, oh, no, this sin is too much for me. I can't handle it. No, he sits there as the teachers of the law are about to stone her. And what does he challenge the teachers with? He says, he who has no sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they begin to drop their stones. And they begin to walk away until it's just Jesus and this woman. This woman who had sinned directly against Christ. And Jesus was the one who could have rightfully cast the first stone upon her. But instead, he looks on her with compassion and love. And he forgives her. And he encourages to go and sin no more. And so you see, it's not that Jesus can't be present to sin, but rather it's sin that cannot be present to Jesus. That at the presence and that the holiness of our Savior, our sin flees, and we are set free, and we are washed white as snow. Because it is in Christ that all things are held together. It is in Christ that he is greater than all 
things. He is greater than our plans. He's greater than our failures. He's greater than any spiritual force and on heaven and on earth. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, I am convinced that there is nothing that can ever separate us from God's love. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. And even the powers of hell cannot separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of our God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus is greater than all things. And so when we submit to his greatness, when we acknowledge that Jesus is supreme, and when we stop striving and we begin submitting to his lordship, there's a peace that comes. A peace that is beyond all reason and understanding, and it comes washing over us. When we acknowledge Christ as Lord, there is a joy that comes, giving us strength in the middle of our weakness. When we acknowledge that Christ is Lord, there's a rest that comes and guides us even when we are weary. And when we submit, there is a healing that comes and mends us in the very places that we are broken. So it's my hope this morning that we would take time to pause, that we take time to marvel at the wonder that is he, who is Jesus Christ, in whom there is no greater one for us to place our faith, our hope, our love. Because there's no greater love than this but for one to lay down his life for a friend. And so it's in Jesus he does call us friend. And so let's praise him. Let's gaze upon him. Let's look upon his glorious face and let our hearts and minds be moved. And it's my hope this morning that we would be moved towards worship. That we would just allow ourselves the permission to stand in awe and to be his child and for that to be enough. And that we would experience peace and love and joy and rest, and healing. And so as we come to this time of reflection, we're going to spend some time worshiping, celebrating the goodness and the greatness of our God. We're going to take some time reflecting and remembering the sacrifice Jesus gave for us on the cross, the way his body was broken and his blood was spilled out, so that we might have new hope in him. So we'll take communion. You can take the cracker, break it, and dip it, and take it anywhere in this time of reflection. A time to just stand and meditate and pray. A time to go back and give, responding in generosity as our God has responded in generosity towards us. This time is between you and God, and it's something that we celebrate together as a community. So I just invite you into it in any way that God is calling you. But let us get rid of all distractions and let us focus on him who's greater than all things, the image of the invisible God. Would you guys pray with me? Dear Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we have to come together to focus on you, to look upon the greatness of your Son, 
to look at the greatness of your love for us, to look at how you rule the world. God, I pray that you would humble us, that we would know our limitations, that we would stop striving to become like gods, and that we would start striving to submit to you and to know your love and to know your grace and to rest in your peace, that we would give up our possessions to become your possession, that we'd give up our plans to live out your good plans that you prepared in advance for us. God, may you cover us with your grace and love this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.